The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. I know you might well. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. Must I do? She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues. Envy. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. When I was young, one of the main ways that I first started experiencing stories uh, was through bedtime. And I, and I think it's still a tradition that, that many people hold, at least I hope they do. Uh, it enlightened my mind, it expanded my imagination, and many of these stories came from my father. And uh, this crazy Beatles-loving, guitar-playing, motorcycle-riding dude that I call dad was just phenomenal at this. And often we would go to bed at night, me and my two brothers, and after laying in bed for a while and goofing off, suddenly we'd hear footsteps coming down the stairs. And my dad would pop in and he would either bring with him a guitar or uh, he would sit down and he would tell us stories. And on one of these occasions, uh, something really interesting happened. My brother and I, my brother Clayton, uh, who I've uh, featured on uh, my podcast before, we were laying in bed and as older brothers do, he, he was challenging me on something. And that thing was my love for rollerblading. I was way into rollerblading and I had declared that rollerblading was my thing, it was my passion. And so one evening while we were laying there in bed trying to go to sleep, my brother challenged me. He said, if you really loved rollerblading, like you would show it more. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I, I like rollerblade more than anyone in the neighborhood. I have rollerbladed so much that the wheels on my rollerblades are getting like wound down till the wheels are just tiny. And he's like, well, you know, there's another way that you could prove that you're really into rollerblading. And I said, what's that? I'm up for it. I'll prove it. I'll prove anything. And he said, you know, a real rollerblader, wouldn't he like sleep in his rollerblade gear? Like if you truly loved it. And again, remember, I'm like, I'm like 10, 11, my brother's three years older than me. So whatever that is, 13, 14. Um, and he's challenging me. He's saying like a real rollerblader would go to bed with their rollerblade gear on. And so I said, sure, I'm up for it. And he's like, or maybe that's too uncomfortable for you. Maybe you're not really into rollerblading. And of course, me being a dumb kid, I took the bait. So I hopped out of bed. I went over to our closet and I started putting on my knee pads, my elbow pads. I put on my wrist guards that I would wear. And I uh, put those all on and then I crawled back into bed. And I was like, see, I'm gonna sleep in these. It won't be that hard. I love rollerblading. I'm gonna sleep in these. So as I'm laying there, suddenly we hear footsteps on the stairs. Dun, 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 dun. Someone's coming downstairs. I'm like, uh-oh. So we get quiet. I pull my covers up. My brother hops into his bed. Clayton hops into his bed. And the door opens. And sure enough, it's dad. And he sweeps into the room with a guitar. He sits down on a chair in between our two beds. And he starts strumming a few songs. And he's there to play his songs to go to sleep. How wonderful. As I'm laying there in bed, covered up by a blanket, wearing elbow pads, knee pads, wrist guards, the works, proving my love for rollerblading. Well, as it goes, as I'm sitting there, 
laying there, it starts to itch. I don't know if you've ever worn knee pads before, but they're, they're not made of like soft felt, right? They're made of like firm fabric that is woven so that it can withstand the pressures of a lot of athletic movement. And suffice it to say that they get itchy after a little bit, even if you're just wearing them. And on top of that, I'm covered up by a blanket and it starts to get warm. I'm getting kind of sweaty and itchy and I've got these stupid knee pads on and these stupid elbow pads and I'm, realize, I'm realizing how dumb it was to, to take the bait to try and prove that, that I was into rollerblading because my dad's there now and I, I can't tell him that like I'm wearing knee pads. It's like, what's going on? So he's playing guitar and I decide, you know what? If I just go real slow, I can undo the Velcro on these and I can slip them off. I'll keep them under the blanket, but I'll slip out of them and then I'll be comfortable and I'll be able to fall asleep. So while my dad's playing guitar, I slowly start undoing the Velcro. And you all know how Velcro sounds, that And I'm trying to go so slow. I'm using a finger to like dig between the loops and the hooks on the Velcro and just do it ever so slowly. And it, and I think I'm being really quiet and he's playing guitar. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of noise pollution. But every once in a while, my dad would just suddenly stop playing the song. And it would just be quiet for a moment and I would freeze. And then he'd start playing again and the music's going again. I'm like, huh, oh, that was weird. And so I start going creep, 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 peeling off the Velcro straps. And suddenly my dad stops playing again. He's waiting, he's listening. And this happens two or three times. And about the third time, my dad goes, are you guys hearing that? There's like this weird crackle sound. Like what, it, what is that? At this point, I had had enough. It was hot, I was itchy, I was mad at Clayton. So I threw off the blanket, I crawled out of bed, and I just start stripping elbow pads and wrist guards and knee pads and throwing them on the ground. And when I got them all off, I hop back in bed and cover up with the blanket. And the entire time, my dad just stares at me, absolutely dumbfounded. <laughs> Honestly, he didn't say a thing. He just goes right back to playing guitar and he finished the song, wished us good night and then headed upstairs. And after he left, Clayton just started laughing and laughing and laughing. And in hindsight, I can't help but smile at this story as well because I just, I just can't help but put myself in the perspective of my dad. He's, he's playing guitar and he's hearing this weird noise and suddenly his son stops climbs out of bed and starts taking off elbows and knee pads. And he's got to have been thinking, my son is such a moron. What is he doing wearing knee pads to bed? Like, and the best part was he didn't ask a single thing about it. He just finished and headed on upstairs. And from then on, I was very wary of taking on a challenge for my older brother, Clayton. I decided I didn't have to prove to him whether or not I was into rollerblading. But my dad was such a good sport about these things. And along with guitar playing, he would come down and he would tell us story after story after story. Uh, one of the famous stories, another famous story that, that gets told in our family a lot uh, has to do, we call it the story of, whoa, bright light. We uh, had a downstairs bedroom and the window to our bedroom was on ground level. And one night my dad was in there like normal, telling a story to both Spencer, Clayton and me. And the story was just getting good when suddenly 
some headlights from outside shined on the window for just a second. And in the retelling of this story, I'm not sure if it's very definitive or not. I can't remember. Every time we tell it, it seems to change. But either me or Clayton, one of us said, whoa, bright light, referring to the headlights that had just passed through our window. But the moment we said that, whoa, bright light, the moment I said that, my dad stopped, he went and peeked out the window, and then he went upstairs and left. And we could hear the voices of, the voice of our uncle at the front door, and then our uncle came inside, and we were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And it seemed like an hour before my dad was done talking to my uncle at the door, and we could just hear him right outside our window talking. And, of course, my older brother Spencer was very accusatory towards the one who had said, whoa, bright light. Because he's like, man, we were in the middle of this good story, and now Dad's gone up there, and now we're all waiting. And sure enough, when Dad comes back down, and it felt like an hour later, he popped his head back in and said, hey, boys, it's time to go to sleep. It's too late to finish the story. We'll have to do it later. And he went on out. Boy, was my brother upset that I had said, whoa, bright light. The thing I want, the reason I'm sharing these stories is to show how uh, uh, oral narrative can still be such a big part of our lives. And, and as I thought about this, like I said, it's an, it's an area of storytelling that I have been very uh, dismissive of. And um, I don't know why that is. And I was just thinking back over my life and, and trying to think, where did oral narrative, oral storytelling play such a big role? And of course, it started so much with my father. And... Uh, the whoa bright light moment was is just an amazing memory, the rollerblade memory. Um, but on top of that, my dad would he would tell us these crazy stories that that had my mind just spinning and exploring new worlds. My dad really liked sci-fi, and he told us of a story of a of a spaceship that goes into outer space. They land on a planet and they discover these weird eggs. And this crazy thing happens with one of the eggs, and they get away from it, and they get back on the spaceship, and everybody thinks they're all right. But then one guy starts to get really, really sick. And then a few days later, he's absolutely fine again. And then he goes into the, to the mess hall inside the spaceship and, and they're eating pancakes. And he just starts scarfing down pancakes. And I remember him telling this and I remember picturing this. And he's like, he's eating more pancakes than seems healthy and eating them faster and faster. And it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on with this guy? And suddenly this, he seizes up and he falls onto the table and it's like this crazy moment where he's like, oh my gosh, and then something starts pushing out of his chest and lo and behold, an alien explodes out of his chest and climbs out of the body and the guy is dead because he had been incubating this alien. And of course, I'm like, this blows my mind. And anybody who's listening to this knows, or hopefully many of you recognize that my father was telling us the story of Alien, which was one of his favorite movies. Uh, and he was telling it to us because he, he loved this sci-fi stuff. But what I loved about it was instead of just showing us Alien, he told us the story of Alien. And he, uh, in hindsight, there's so many of his stories that I have run across later in life and been like, oh my gosh, dad, you were, re you were retelling this movie, Andromeda Strain, um, Sphere, uh, these books by Michael Crichton, like I said, quite a few sci-fi novels. My dad would just retell them. And in hindsight, I look back on this and it, it, it was sort of amazing to see his take on these sci-fi stories that, that we consider finished and done, he made them his own and retold them to us. And it was such an amazing experience. Now, what am I getting at with this? There, there's a couple details that I wanted to mention. First off, uh, as my dad retold the movie Alien, 
I had a totally visceral experience uh, of that story, but it, it was through the lens of my father, right? He was able to take uh, a potentially not good for children, an R-rated film, and tell it in such a way that it wasn't nearly as graphic, um, even though he did include the part with the alien coming out of the chest. He was able to tell it to his kids in such a way that maybe it wasn't such graphic content, right? He could breeze over certain parts of it. And there are going to be people that are like, oh, you can't do that. Doesn't that destroy the story? And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today because such a large, such a large part of oral narrative is this idea of stories morphing, evolving, and changing based on audience, based on who heard the story and who's telling it later. And for a long time, I have felt like this is, this is sort of the downfall of oral narrative is the fact that it morphs with time. But after I've thought about it, really, it's this really interesting balance between canon and an artistry that is storytelling. Like I mentioned in the Woe Bright Light story, um, it is unknown who actually said those words. And depending on who's telling it, I believe when my brother Clayton tells the story, he tells it as though he is the one who said Woe Bright Light, which is the infamous term in our family, Woe Bright Light. And, the, and it changes with time. And, and the question that comes to my mind is, does it, does it truly matter how it actually happened? Because the moment that we take a story in, it already starts to morph based on our sensibilities and the parts in it that stand out to us. These things have been on my mind recently because I have long been opposed to Audible, which is taking books and having them be an audiobook where someone reads the book and you just listen to it. And I, I for a long time, did not like the idea of Audible because I am a somewhat slow reader and I would argue that I take a lot of detail in when I'm reading a story. I'll stop and think about things. I'll mark passages and part of this comes from the fact that I'm a, an aspiring author, I'm a writer, and I'm wanting to learn from the things that I'm reading. And so when you're listening to a story, you can't always pause it and try and learn from it, learn how things are working. You're just, you're just taking it all in in a moment. Um, and so I was really resistant to Audible for a long time. The other thing, and, and I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, um, I've, so, I've met so many people that do Audible, and their favorite thing about Audible is they can listen to it as a double speed. I've, I've even had a friend who told me they're really proud to say that they're able to listen to Audible on almost three times speed or something like that. And this also goes very much against just me as a uh, as a digester of stories. I'm like, what? Like, what's the hurry? Why do you want it to be over so quickly? And the and the counter argument is there's so much out there that people want to to experience that they're like, the quicker I can get through a book, the quicker I can be on to the next one. And I can kind of get that sensibility, but I have to believe that when you're listening to something at, at double speed, that you're not taking in as much of the, if it's an educational, if it's nonfiction, you're not taking in as much as the details. And if it's fiction, you're, you're missing parts in it, and it may be moving at a pace quicker than it was intended um, or in its best form. But, but that's neither here nor there. That's, that's sort of just me. That's the reason that I've been resistant to Audible. But recently, on a long drive, my wife and I, uh, on a drive, we, we started listening to Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. And I have to say that it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in a long time, partly because Matthew McConaughey actually reads the Audible book himself. So it's like, it's, it's oral narrative. I was, I was hearing Matthew McConaughey's inflection, his voice, his interpretation of the words, 
uh, first off, Green Lights is a really, really awesome book. Not for kids, but uh, definitely a lot of adult content in it, um, just in terms of language mostly. Uh, but it was so cool to hear it from Matthew McConaughey's own perspective. And, and I've wanted to get the book and compare notes because I think there's parts of in it that, that are sort of um, added by Matthew McConaughey. Throughout it, he, he, you know, he'll chuckle and be like, ha ha, green light. And I just have to believe that those, those ha-has and those little moments where you can tell that he gets excited aren't necessarily in the book. And that got me really thinking a lot about oral narrative and the power of sharing a story just from yourself with an audience and, and the person actually telling the story being part of the artistry of that story. Uh, on top of that, I have also been listening to Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, and it has been super rewarding. And in the back of my mind, some of the things that Neil Gaiman says at the beginning of the book about how these stories were passed on generation after generation, told orally for a long time before they were finally written down. And you can picture yourself gathered around a fire and listening to someone share these fantastical stories about Thor and Odin and Loki. And it's, it's just amazing to me to think of how much these stories drove a culture and a society and how important they were. They were the backbone of, of the culture and, and the way they interpreted this, this world. And part of me just missed that. It was strange to be missing something that I've never truly experienced other than when my dad would come down and share a story. But I just imagine having this whole community of people that would love to gather and just listen to a story be told. And I I want to be a part of that. And so I wanted to share this episode just because, honestly, because these things have been on my mind. But also because I wanted an opportunity to share some of the stories that I've experienced or some of the stories that I love and to do it with my own voice and with my own inflection and sort of partake and participate in the story at another level. And so I have to say that I've come around to uh, just in the past probably three months, I've come around to really, really like this idea of oral narrative. And of course, doing my podcast and my YouTube uh, sharing these stories from my upbringing and from my youth has been very rewarding. One, to get them down documented, but two, to be able to just share them with an audience. And I love it. I wanted to share this quote that I came across from Norman Calder. He's quoted in a book called The Quran, Formative Interpretation. And he says something really interesting about oral narrative. He says, oral narrative is marked by instability of form and detail from version to version and by an appropriate creative flexibility which makes of every rendering a unique work of art. Each version differs from another in various ways to present certain ideas, such as the importance of Ishmael over Isaac because he was the first child. I came across this as I was researching a little bit about the story of Abraham and Isaac from the Bible because I believe it is one of the most impactful stories that, have, that has ever happened on this world. And, and I don't just say that uh, because I'm a Christian or because I, I read from the Bible regularly and find inspiration from these stories. I say that from more of a, a global perspective if you think about it. That story uh, impacted um, Judaism and Islam and Christianity and, and those three peoples cover two-thirds of the population of this world. Two-thirds of the population on planet Earth 
know this story and look to this story as a source of intrigue, a source of study, and a source of inspiration. And to me, that is just so powerful. But the crazy thing about it is uh, most people um, that, that, that are in walks of life in my uh, immediate sphere are very familiar with the biblical version of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, but, but I do know that there are other versions of this story. And this kind of harks back to what Norman Calder was saying here when he says uh, oral narrative is marked by instability, right? It makes every telling a work of art, which instead of, uh, of pushing away from this idea of having different versions of the story, because, you know, the historian and all of us, we don't want to hear two versions of the same story because we're left often, often differing versions of a story are conflicting versions of a story. And, and the, the logical man inside of us says, what's the real version? What really happened? But if you take a step back and you say, what is the purpose of narrative? Then we can approach storytelling and, and sort of find balance or resolution inside ourselves in accepting that there can actually be multiple tellings, multiple versions of the same story because the objective of the storytelling is different. Now, like I mentioned, Abraham and Isaac, uh, if, if you're not familiar with that story, I recommend to go, I mean, I'm sure you can get on YouTube, you could get on Google, you could hear someone tell it, you could go read it in Genesis 22 in the Bible. Um, and you're gonna, you're gonna find this story about Abraham who is asked to sacrifice his son and he willingly goes and does it. It's this, it's the story of obedience, right? But as I was, I was doing this studying, because I've also heard there are, um, not to ruin the story, but it, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac in the Bible telling, an angel stops him and says, good enough. I just needed, God just needed to know that Abraham was willing and that he stops him from actually killing Isaac. But I've heard that in some uh, traditions and in some oral versions of the story, Abraham actually went through with it and kills Isaac, and it becomes his ultimate example of sacrifice and obedience. And to modern-day audiences, the idea of sacrificing your own son, of course, is just, like, awful. It's like, how could you? But... What it does to the story is it totally reshapes the intention of the story. And so I did, I did a little bit of digging on this because I also know that inside of Islam, and I don't know a lot about it, and I apologize, any mistakes or any details that I mention of this that are incorrect, just know that it comes from a lack of experience in that sphere, but, but not for a lack of interest. I understand that um, in the Islamic telling of the story of Abraham and Ishmael, there is this different focus of instead of the story being so focused on Abraham and his decision, actually Ishmael knows what's happening. He knows that Abraham has been asked to sacrifice him and he goes along willingly. In fact, he tells Abraham, make sure to tie my hands behind my back and make sure that I am looking away so that I don't make it harder for you to go forward and do what God is asking. Like, I just retold the story of Abraham and Isaac or the, you know, the version based on Abraham and Ishmael. And I just retold that story with a few different details. And do you see how it changes the story entirely? The focus becomes about Ishmael. And instead of Abraham being the one that is the amazing obedient one, Ishmael is also this shining pillar of true obedience to God's command. 
because he is willing to go with it. He's willing to sacrifice himself knowing that it is what God wants. And ultimately God intervenes. And I believe uh, the Quran says that a greater sacrifice was made. Whereas in the Bible, a, a ram shows up and or a ram is caught in a thicket and Abraham takes the ram and sacrifices it. Uh, I don't believe the Quran is that specific. It just says a greater sacrifice is made and Ishmael isn't sacrificed. But isn't that amazing what happens when we have these retellings of the same story. And for a long time, like me, I believe there are many people that have a hard time with this. And I believe this manifests in, in this long debate that I have had to straddle for so long, which is books versus movies. Because often movies find their stories in books and they want to retell them, but the mediums are so different. And often the, the filmmakers themselves are looking for a different approach to the story, and we balk at it. We we are resistant to it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people say, oh, the book is always better than the movie. But I went to film school. I got a degree in screenwriting. I love books. I love movies. And I feel like I'm in this world where I'm constantly straddling the two worlds of movie storytelling and book storytelling and having to rectify this this argument of which is better. And, and I believe the answer comes down to look to the source, the, the original source of narrative, which is oral storytelling. And you find that, that stories are intended to be shaped with time. They, they often have multiple versions and multiple tellings. And, and why shouldn't they? Why can't we have a, have a world where we can digest and glean and learn and be inspired by multiple versions of the same story? Because I have to be totally honest. I believe that every time a human being verbally tells a story, it will be different. And we leave out details. We remember other details. Or if two people witness the same event, they will tell the story different. So it's really hard to say what is the definitive version of a story. And instead I say we embrace all versions of the story. Before we leave this topic of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham and Ishmael, I wanted to share uh, a quick quote from the Legends of the Jews by um, Louis Ginsburg. And it says the following. When God commanded the father to desist from sacrificing Isaac, Abraham said, one man tempts another because he knoweth not what is in the heart of his neighbor. But thou surely didst know that I was ready to sacrifice my son. To which God says, it was manifest to me, and I foreknew it, that thou wouldst withhold not even thy soul from me. And so Abraham says, and why then didst thou afflict me thus? And God says, it was my wish that the world should become acquainted with thee, and should know that it is not without good reason that I have chosen thee from all the nations. Now it hath been witnessed unto men that thou fearest God. This struck me. Uh, very deeply because, like I said, this story of Abraham and Isaac, it, it crosses most of the world over. And how many billions of people look to this story today and try and, and glean inspiration from it? Um, so whether or not this exchange between Abraham and God actually happened, whether or not it's just folklore or just an oral legend or a, a myth... Or whether or not it really happened doesn't matter. The, the interesting part is it's why would God tempt Abraham? So that we across the entire world could have this story. And to me, that was just very, very potent. Which brings us to this topic. Canon versus story as an art form. Oral narrative by nature is going to be an art form because, like that quote I shared earlier, a story is going to change with each telling. And therefore, it is the art... The, the art 
and the ability of the storyteller to bring certain details out or leave certain details behind. But we have such a problem with this in today's age because we love this idea of canon. We love this idea of having the definitive version of a thing. And it is the only version and it is the true version. Which is just interesting to me because I, I think a lot about films and books and music. And we live in a time where we have this ownership of them. We, when we experience a story, we, we, we take it as our own, especially when it's a story that we love. Um, I, I remember when one of my film professor was talking about how when they were growing up, you didn't, you didn't buy movies. The only time you were able to go experience a movie was at the theater. And it was like a piece of music being played live. Like, you can't interrupt it. You can't pause it. Like, the story would happen in the allotted time frame, and, and that was it. And you either were there to experience it or you weren't. It wasn't something that you reached out and took possession of. But we live in this weird time now where, because of technology and many of the advancements that we've seen over the past probably 40 years, uh, it, it has become this thing that we, we take ownership of stories. And of course, books have been this way for many, many years, but before books were oral narrative and you didn't have ownership of it. You listened to a story and then you could pass it on, but it was going to be filtered through your own lens. But books, they, they put a, def a, a definition of the story down on hard paper and it was, it was unmoving and unchanging. And so people started to collect stories that way. Movies are interesting for me because it was only with the advent of the VHS tape that movies became something that we could literally possess and have be our own. And while there is so much good that comes from that, there also comes this concept of, no, this is canon, this is the final version, and this is the way it has to be. Now, there is no other example more prevalent in my mind when it comes to the audience taking ownership of the story, taking it and saying, this is ours, than things we've seen in recent years with the movie Star Wars. As George Lucas has gone back and done some revisions, the, the fans of Star Wars have, have just totally hated everything that he was doing to these stories that they loved and they had ownership of. And, and you can delve deep into this, this concept uh, of what happened with Star Wars. Um, just get online and start looking up the changes and how people feel about them. And there's this whole movement. Uh, you can now get online and download uh, what they're calling as close as they can get to the actual theatrical version of Star Wars uh, 4, 5, and 6, the original trilogy, because people want to hark back to that canon. And so this debate has been going on in my mind because I, I, I can see the one side that when we experience a story one way and love it, we, we don't want to see it changed and we don't want to see it happen a different way. We want the same story every time. This again shows up with J.K. Rowling. She's She's been a little bit notorious on Twitter recently, sharing things and details and new information about Harry Potter that is just straight up not in the books. But she feels like as the author, she owns the narrative and therefore she is the dispenser of all Harry Potter truth. There, there's this idea that, that once an author puts a piece of art, whether it's music, films, books, photography, there's this concept that once an author or a creator or an artist puts that out to the world, that it no longer belongs to them. That it is now the ownership of the audience to, 
take in and interpret and enjoy or hate in any way that they want. And uh, I think a lot of authors or creators, especially of these mega successful stories like Star Wars and Harry Potter, that the creators are like, no, this is mine. This came from my heart. This is, this is what I say it is. And there's this interesting tug of war between the audience and the creator which to me is intriguing. And honestly, I don't have a lot of answers about whether or not this is good or bad. I just know that it is, and it's been something that's been on my mind. But it came up in my mind a lot as I have been thinking about this concept of oral narrative and this idea that when, when stories are shared orally, they change with time. Um, and it's certainly something to be grappled with and something to think deep about of, of, of when we hate a different version of a story why? Why why is it that both can't exist in the same world? That's not to say that I that I have any of the answers because like many people I was annoyed at some of the changes that George Lucas made to Star Wars. I like the original, the canon, but as I mentioned for so long this idea of having a canon, a definitive version of a narrative has just been my my mode. And having thought deeper about oral narrative it has really shifted my perspective on the value of having uh, an ever-changing experience with narrative. Why can't there be room in the world for both? That's sort of a quest question I've been I've been asking myself. Um, and this came up again in an interesting experience. Uh, when I was growing up, we had this book called Tiki Tiki Tembo, and <laughs> it's this awesome book and it's this awesome story. And we totally grew up on it. And I remember this amazing experience of my older brother Clayton reading this story to me as fast as it could because it's a story about this Chinese kid with a really, really long name. And the idea is that you have to say his name many times throughout the story. And that's, that's kind of the fun of it. When I'm driving in the car with my daughters, we often like to turn on stories Stories podcast. Uh, it is by Amanda Weldon. It's this really awesome podcast. You can get it on on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and she shares stories for kids. And they're these just these like ten minute little short stories that that are really quite charming. And uh, we were listening to one, and she shares a story that is also about a presumably whether it's Chinese, Japanese inspired. Um, I don't know. It. it I believe that that Amanda Weldon. Uh, sort of help make this story up, but it's it's about this kid named Jugumu Jugumu who also has a really long name, and actually the narrative is the spitting image. <laughs> it is the spitting image of Tiki Tiki Tembo, and so I'm listening to it, and I'm like wrinkling up my nose as as Amanda Weldon and uh, Scott Isseri are are sharing this story, and I'll get into a little more of the details there here in a second. But they're sharing the story, and I'm wrinkling my nose because I'm like. That's not Tiki Tiki Tembo. That's not how the story goes. I know the story. And suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it again, where there, there's not room in this world for multiple versions of a narrative. And yet at its core, the original narrative form is ever changing. Um, so yeah, Tiki Tiki Tembo, no so Rembo, Cherry Berry, Rich Pip, Pip Pop. <laughs> Let me take that again. Tiki Tiki Tembo, no so Rembo, Cherry Berry, Ruchi Pip, Perry Pembo. And it's a story about Tiki Tiki Tembo and he ends up falling in a well and his older brother has to run for help. And when he has to run for help, he, he gets to, to, to his parents and he's trying to tell them what happened. He's tripping over himself and he's having the hardest time because he's got to keep repeating this name. And every time he repeats the name, Tiki Tiki Tembo, Noso Rambo, Cherry Berry, Richie Pip, 
Perry Pembo, uh, it slows him down and he's, he's not able to get the message out because the name is so long. But eventually he goes and gets a man who has a ladder and he tells him to, he's like, Tiki Tiki Tembo, no Saramba, Cherry Berry, Richard Pip, Pip Perry Pembo has fallen in the well. And the guy's like, who? And he has to say it again, Tiki Tiki. And eventually they get a ladder and they go rescue his brother. And from this story, the parents decide that naming their son, Tiki Tiki Tembo, no Saramba, Cherry Berry, Richard Pip Perry Pembo is just too long of a name. And they shorten his name to just Tiki. And I, I, I did a little bit of reading, and I guess this story was inspired by some folklore in China that is seeking to explain why names in Chinese are so short. And, and this, this myth uh, that, that inspired this, this children's book um, is where that comes from. Like I said, on the stories podcast, they share a similar, similar narrative. And Amanda Weldon invites Scott Isseri, um to come on and share a story. And together they tell the story of Jugumu Jugumu Shubiyu Okay, I'm gonna try this again. Jugumu Jugumu Shibuya K Bjorn, Lucky Endeavor, Clever Forever, Boogie Shoe Dotashi Maste Popcorn. And that's the name of this kid in the story. And throughout the entire podcast, they have to say the name over and over and over. And, it, and, and we derive a lot of the humor from repeating this name over and over. And it's the same story. Jugumu, Jugumu, Shibuya K Bjorn, Lucky Endeavor, Clever Forever, Boogie Shoe Dotashi Maste Popcorn um, ends up falling in a hole. And it's just like falling in the well in the Tiki Tiki Tembo story. And uh, his friend has to go for help. But there's a twist that they do in the story's podcast version of, of Tiki Tiki Tembo. And I guess this is a new version of the story. It's Jugamu Jugamu. And the difference is, instead of the message being, gosh, dang it, Jugamu, you've got too long of a name. We need to shorten it. They actually put a twist on it. And the way they tell the story is that because his friend never learned his full name, when, he, when she goes to get help, she's not able to get help because they don't know who she's talking about because she doesn't know his name, she called him Jugi. So the message in this more modern version, in my opinion, of Tiki Tiki Tambo, the message is that instead of shortening names because of cultural or uh, you know, modern expediency, we should learn people's names how it is. And, and at first this, this bothered me because I was like, come on, Tiki Tiki Tambo, that's not what the story's about. Like, of course, having your name be Jugama Jugama Shibuya K Bjorn, Lucky Endeavor, Clever Forever, Boogie Show Dotashi Maste Popcorn. Like, that's just ridiculous. You can't have your name lo- that long. But as I've thought more about it, you know, I had a, fr- a couple friends at college who came over from China and they come over to study in America and they were in, in school with me. And when they'd come over, they would, they would pick an American name to make it easier on people uh, who, who wouldn't know how to pronounce their name. And I thought that was interesting. And, and more than interesting, I thought that that must have been difficult to, to feel like you have to sacrifice a certain part of your of who you are. And, you know, names are, are part of our legacy. A, a name is the one thing that, that gets passed on to us from our parents. And, and names have meaning. And after thinking about these different versions of the same story... Um, that are told with two very, very different messages in the end, uh, I like both of them. And the, the, the version with Jugumu Jugumu, I just thought it was super interesting that it, it's sort of this message that instead of making someone change their name because modern culture doesn't like the having to repeat it so long, it's like, no, you should learn how to say someone's name the right way. And, and I think there is some truth there. I actually think there's truth in both of the narratives and they're both worth hearing the stories and understanding them and thinking about them. And, and of course, this is just a, a little kid's book and a, and a kid's story, but, 
but shifting just a few of the details totally changes the entire meaning of the story. So to round out today's episode, I'm going to try something. And in the beginning of Neil Gaiman's book on Norse mythology, he makes an invitation that I took to heart. And I've been nervous to do this because Neil Gaiman is his, his voice, his cadence, and then his writing is just so good in Norse mythology. I recommend everyone to go read it. It's so engaging and interesting um, to hear these stories about Thor and Loki and Odin. He makes this invitation that, that I wanted to share with all of you. I hope I've retold these stories honestly, but there was still joy and creation in the telling. That's the joy of myths. The fun comes in telling them yourself, something I warmly encourage you to do, you person listening to this. Read the stories in this book, then make them your own, and on some dark and icy winter's evening, or on a summer night when the sun will not set, tell your friends what happened and Thor's hammer was stolen, or how Odin obtained the mead of poetry for the gods. Neil Gaiman, Listen Grove, London, May 2016. Okay, so this invitation was really interesting for me because I was thinking about oral narrative and my podcast and YouTube and the content that I'm sharing and being a writer, and I just felt very compelled to try this on. When, when Neil invites everybody to listen to these stories and then to share them. Imagine yourself gathered around a campfire at night and sharing these stories. He, he says, make them your own. Tell them, uh, you know, don't worry. Be so worried about getting them right or wrong, but share the stories so that they can live on and live on in their form that they were originally created in. And I took that to heart and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find an opportunity to, to share a story from Norse mythology. And I just want to say that I'm, uh, like I said, I'm a little nervous here because I'm not a scholar in Norse mythology. I haven't read tons and tons and tons of Norse mythology. I'm just a fan who, who really enjoyed hearing Neil Gaiman share these stories, and I wanted to participate, and I wanted to pass along one of those stories. So, uh, without further ado, I am going to share the story of the Master Builder, or the Wall of Asgard. And again, if there are any mistakes, or I get anything wrong, I'm sorry. And I, I guess I should also mention that I gave myself a few stipulations or a few rules when it came to preparing to tell this story. And that was I wanted it to be an experience as an oral narrative passed from one person to another. And so at first I started writing down details so that I could remember names, I could remember order. And I was like, no, that's it's not allowed. I'm going to listen to the story two times and I'm going to turn around and share it. And I'm sorry if I get anything wrong, but for me, this it felt important to me to experience this, this way of oral narrative and to take in a story and to pass it on. And so this was my favorite story in the whole book, and I'd like to pass it on. The Master Builder or the Wall of Asgard. So as it goes, there was a time when Thor headed to the east, and he went there to fight the trolls. And Thor was one of the chief protectors of Asgard, the home of all of the gods. And while he was gone, the gods got to thinking, and, and, and even though they weren't really worried about a war right now, this was during a time that the, that the Aesir and the Vanir were actually um, allies, and so they weren't worried about a war. But Odin was thinking still, and he, he thought, you know, we can't always rely on Thor to protect us. We need a way to protect Asgard if and when Thor is away like he is now. 
Well, as Odin's thinking about this and discussing this with the other gods, one day a stranger comes to Asgard. A stranger comes with a big black stallion with him, and he says hello. He's dressed up as a smith, and he tells them that he is a master builder, and that he understands that the gods are looking for someone to build a wall around Asgard. And Odin says, yes, yes, we are looking for someone to do that. Is that, is that something you could do? And this master builder tells them that he is an expert builder, and that he could do this, but the price is very very high. And, and Odin says, name your price. And he says, well, first, I want the hand of Freya. And Freya is one of the most beautiful of the Aesir. She's one of the most beautiful of all the gods. And she, um, he wants to take her hand in marriage. And when the other gods look to Freya, as the master builder mentions taking her hand in marriage, she had no reaction, except that her lips seemed to be very pursed. And she was very clearly not happy with the direction this conversation was going. But that wasn't all. The master builder also said that he wanted them to give him the sun as well as the moon. Now, it was a steep price, and Loki stepped in and said, you know, that it is a very steep price that you are asking to build this wall. How do we know that you can, you can achieve building this wall? And he says, I can build a wall so strong that, that no troll could break through it. I can build a wall that's so tall that no giant can climb over it. I can build a wall that the rocks fit so perfectly together that not an ant could crawl between the pieces of stone. And it will certainly protect Asgard. And Loki said, mm, that, that, sounds, that sounds really, really good. But a wall like that must take a really long time to build. And, and this stranger, he laughed and said, no, it won't take long. I can do it in three seasons. It is the beginning of winter now, and give me a winter, a summer, and another winter, and I can have your wall complete. The gods thought in this, and Odin sat back and was like, hmm, this is interesting. And Freya, she looked downright disgruntled that they would even be considering this option. But the gods convened and the stranger went away and they went inside the halls of, of Valhalla and Odin questioned the gods. He said, this is a steep price, but it would be great to have a wall. Do we believe that he can do it? And the gods said, it is too high a price to pay. We, we do not want to lose Freya, much less the sun and the moon. It, it is too high a price to, to pay. And so Odin said, well, then it is decided. We will not have him build our wall. Somebody coughed, though, in one corner, and it was the kind of cough that, uh, that drew attention to itself, and everybody turned and looked at, at Loki. He was sitting in a corner, and as they were looking at him, he says, you know, I don't think that you guys have thought this through very much. And Odin said, oh, really? You don't think we've thought this through? Why, why is that, Loki? And he said, because it will take a long time to build this wall. And I don't think that this stranger can do it. And Odin says, well, if he can't do it, then why are we bother dickering with him even in, in the first place? Why are we even discussing it? And Loki said, I think you're missing a key point. We need to agree with him that we will pay him all that he asks if he finishes building the wall in the amount of time that we put forth. And everybody said, if? And he said, if. And if he cannot complete the wall... Well, then we don't have to pay him anything. And Odin says, but, but why, why would we want to do that? And Loki's like, ah, oh, are you really so thick? 
If he completes most of the wall, then we'll have most of the work done, and he passes the deadline, we'll get our wall almost entirely finished, and we'll get it all for free. And then once he has left, we can finish building the wall ourselves, and we can have our cake and eat it too. At this point, many of the gods were nodding and slapping Loki on the back and saying, you are a very clever fellow. And, and, and Odin asks Loki, do you really think he'll agree to this? And Loki says, well, if he doesn't, then nothing's changed. But, but it's worth asking, don't you think? And all the gods were very excited at this point. Except for one god, Freya, looked at Loki and she said, I hate you. I think you are foolish because you think you are so clever. And she stormed away. Nevertheless, the gods proceeded outside. They called this stranger, and Loki spoke for them and said, Hmm, we're interested in having you build our wall, and we can agree to the things that you have requested for this wall, but we want you to do it in one season. It is the first day of winter now, and if you aren't able to finish the wall by the first day of summer, then the deal is off. Second, you can have no help. We don't want you going and rounding up a bunch of your friends because... We're only paying you, and the agreement was that you would complete the wall. Are we in agreement? Well, the stranger looked around, and he looked back at his horse, and he said, Hmm, one condition. Could I have my horse help me? And everybody thought about it, and all the gods nodded and said, You know, a horse is a, horse is a very useful thing when building a wall. So they agreed, and they said, You can use your horse, but nobody else to help you build this wall. And you must have it done by the first day of summer. The stranger agreed. He said he could do it. So the gods made oaths. They got together and made the kind of oaths that could not be broken. They swore on Dropnir, Odin's armband, and they swore on Gunnir, Odin's spear. And they swore that they would hold up this oath that if a wall was built for them by the first day of summer, using no help from anyone except the stranger's horse, then they would pay him with the gift of the sun and the moon and the hand of Freya in marriage. The O's having been made, the stranger set to work. First, he dug a great trench, and he did it quickly. In the matter of a few days, he dug a great trench all around Osgard that was very, extremely deep. And the gods watched him, and they were impressed. This man is moving very, very quickly. Psh, Loki brushed it off and said, anybody can dig a hole. He's just digging a hole. Just you wait. Once he has to fetch rocks from the mountains, you will see. It will take him more than one season to be able to complete this wall. That evening, they saw the stranger leave, and he took his horse, who he called Swath. Oh, shoot, what is the horse's name? So the stranger took his horse, whom he called Swathelflili. I don't think that's the right name, but I'm going to have to go with it because I swore I wouldn't. I swore I wouldn't go back and look. He took his horse, Swathelflili, and they headed towards the mountain. And this horse was very, very strong. And to it, he attached a great sled. And they headed for the mountains. And Loki said, they'll be gone for forever. It will take, it will take weeks to fill the sled with stone to build this wall. And everybody trusted Loki. But the next morning, they were surprised to see the stranger coming back. And Swathelflili had behind him a great mount of stones in the sled that the horse was pulling to the spot where the ditch had been dug to build the wall. And the master builder set to work, taking great stones and planting them in the ground and filling up the trench and stacking one stone on top of another. And all the gods watched 
and all of them began to get a little bit nervous. None so much as Freya, who did not hate the stranger, but instead turned all her hatred and her malice towards Loki, and she refused to even say a word to him, but stormed off. Loki dismissed it and said, please, the winter has only just begun. He's only got started. There's so much work to do. Anybody can get a good start on a project, but as time goes, this, this stranger will get tired and he'll start moving slower. There is no way he can finish this wall by the first day of summer. And Odin said, Loki, for your sake, I hope you are right. But as the days transpired, each evening the stranger would head off to the mountains with his horse, and he would come back the next morning with the sled full of enormous stones to be stacked and to build the wall. The days came, the days went, and as winter was fading and the snow began to melt, the paths became covered in mud and water. And Loki said to the gods as they watched the stranger work, now you'll see, nobody can pull a sled in this mud. Surely he, he's, he's going to slow down, the progress is not going to continue. But like clockwork, the stranger would leave and come back in the morning with just as much stones. The mud didn't seem to slow him down at all. And all of the gods began to get very, very nervous as that first day of summer was approaching. And it did look like the stranger was going to complete the wall in time. Well, a few nights before the stranger was to finish the wall, the gods gathered and they needed to discuss what was happening because they had to find a solution and everyone was upset, Freya more than the rest, and they urged Odin, you must do something about this. So they called in and Odin says, we must find a solution, but we have sworn unbreakable vows that we would adhere to the, to the rules of the agreement. Odin said, we must find a way to not pay this stranger without breaking our agreements. And Loki shrugged it off and said, bah, the wall is worth it. If we give up the sun and we give up the moon, who, who really cares? I mean, we got our wall, we got what, I want, what we wanted. Everybody turned and gazed and glared at Loki, but none more so than Freya. And she said to him, if this stranger finishes the wall in time and I am to be given to him in marriage, Father Odin, I would ask that you do one thing for me, and that is that you would kill Loki before I am taken off to live with this stranger, that I might see the one who caused this terrible thing to happen to me put to death. Odin agreed, and he looked to Loki and said, if you do not find a solution, your death will be slow and painful. So Loki sat and thought, and he decided, you know what? There is something that we can do about this. Fine, I, I will solve this problem myself. And Loki left without telling any of the other gods what he was up to. Well, the next day, when the stranger was getting ready to, to hitch up his sled to Swathalfari, that's what it is, gosh dang it, I've been saying the name wrong the entire time. When he hitched up his sled to Swathalfari and was getting ready to head to the mountains, he looked around and he was like, where, where is my steed? Where, where has Swathalfari gone? And he looks up the hill and he whistled for Swathalfari and and Swathafari didn't come running like normal. So the stranger trudged up into the forest, and he hiked and looked around and looked around, and eventually he laid eyes on Swathafari at a distance. But something was distracting Swathafari. He called to the horse, and the horse came running back a distance, but as he approached, the stranger heard two sets of hooves, not just one. And as Swathafari drew near, he saw the, the horse was accompanied by a mare, a beautiful, beautiful chestnut brown mare, 
that you didn't even have to check to know that it was indeed a female because everything about it just spoke of pure, beautiful horse femininity. And Swathafari seemed to be very interested in this mare. In fact, the mare would nicker and chew at the grass and wait there, and Swathafari would go running up to meet the mare. But every time he came within a few yards of this new horse, the mare would take off running and Swathafari chasing after it up and up and into the hills, and the stranger whistled and called for Swathofari to join him, and the horse would not come back. He just continued to chase this new, beautiful mare into the mountains. Well, there was only a day left before the stranger had to complete the wall, and so he grudgingly grabbed his sled, and he charged up to the mountains to get the stones by himself. After a long, hard night, he returned to Asgard. His sled had ten stones in it. Freya, was there waiting, and as he pulled up with the stones and no sign of the horse anywhere, Freya said, you have only brought back ten stones. You will need double, if not triple that, in order to complete the wall. How are you going to do it? The gods gathered to hear the stranger's answer, and at this point, the stranger threw up his arm and said, you cheated me. You tricked me. I could have finished the wall by the day that was determined, but you found a way to take my horse so that I would not have Swathafari in order to help me get the stones. To which Odin said, we did not cheat you. You cheated us because you are no smith. You are a stranger in disguise and I know you. You are none but a frost giant. To this, the stranger screamed and shed his clothes and his cloak, and suddenly he grew four times in size and became standing there before them a massive giant. And he said, yes, I am a giant, and you have done me wrong, and you agreed to give me the sun, the moon, and Freya. And since you double-crossed me, I intend to have my gifts. And as he reached down to take Freya, there was a sharp noise on the hillside. Everybody turned to look, and lo and behold, who was coming down from the mountain toward Asgard but Thor himself. He was gleaming and strong and carrying his massive hammer, Mjolnir, and he was ready and excited. He, he thought it was nice of the gods to have prepared some entertainment for his homecoming. Thor came running up, and without hesitation at seeing a, a frost giant there in Asgard, he swung his hammer around and threw it as hard as he could at the giant. The hammer went flying directly towards the giant and clocked him square in the head, killing him in an instant. The gods looked around. They thanked Thor, especially Freya, for saving her from the clutches of this frost giant. But they all looked around and said, well, we have most of our wall. Loki was right. We have most of our wall and we did not have to pay with the sun and the moon and with the hand of Freya. I guess we should probably finish this wall. And when they looked around to, to congratulate themselves and said, where's Loki? We, we want to tell him he was right. His cleverness was right. But Loki was nowhere to be found. Months, months later, after the gods had finished building the wall that the giant had started, Loki showed up and with him was a small gray foal. But there was something interesting about this foal. It had eight legs instead of four, and it was one of the strongest foals ever. And they named it Sleiknir, and it became the horse of the gods. It was given to Odin as a gift for him to ride as his own steed. But as it grew up 
Everyone noticed that it showed a certain natural fondness towards Loki. In fact, when it was able, it, it followed him around as if, it, as if Loki was his mother. Which, in truth, Loki was. Although you wouldn't have mentioned it directly to his face because Loki never would have admitted it. And anyone that did bring it up did not live to see very many more days. And that is the story of how the gods got their wall around Asgard.